Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the final full week of May 2021. I don't know about you, but for me, this time of year, it feels like it's on the cusp of summer, the official birding calendar. Summer starts the 1st of June and the summer season is June and July. But for me, it's a little more about how it feels out in nature when I'm out there. And one of the things that I key on is when the canopy is closed over the alders and the mountain ashes, especially along streets where I might frequently walk and I'm used to being able to see the sky. And then it seems like all of a sudden, often I'll just go down. Maybe I haven't walked down that street in a while and the sky is obscured by all of these leaves. So that's one of the signals of summer to me. Another signal is the songbirds that are nesting here have all arrived. We still have a couple of species yet to show up. I haven't heard any Swainson's thrushes or heard any reports of Swainson's thrushes yet, but this is right around the time when they often start with their little water drip call and then start singing a couple of days later. So I would expect within the next week we'll be hearing Swainson's thrushes and then yellow warblers and cedar waxwings are the other two species I have heard a report of a yellow warbler, but not yet cedar waxwings. And they usually show up in June. But otherwise, I think all our singing uh, nesting birds are arrived and singing and actually starting to feed young. I saw a hairy woodpecker uh, working on trees and heard it's begging young. They sounded quite young still. Um, it's actually late enough now that some of the earlier nesting resident songbirds, such as song sparrows and juncos, will probably be having fledglings out of the nest uh, within the next few days. Is there something that really makes it feel like it's summer to you? If so, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. It's always fun to hear what people are seeing and get a little sense of, of the experience others are having out there in the natural world. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded and originally aired back in the spring of 2019. I spoke then with Andres Lopez, the Curator of Ichthyology and Marine Invertebrates at the Museum of the North up in Fairbanks. He was here as part of the Sitka Sound Science Center's Scientists in Residence Fellowship. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with him telling me a little bit about his role there as a curator at the Museum of the North. My expertise is with fishes, mm -hmm. um, but because fishes are preserved in the same way as you preserve marine invertebrates or marine invertebrates are preserved the same way as fishes. I also take care of the marine invertebrate collections, but, but I don't have any training yeah. or expertise in marine invertebrates so other than I know how to <laughs> take care of the research collections. Um, so this is at the Museum of the North in, in Fairbanks. Yeah, the University of Alaska and Museum of the North. My understanding is that people can visit the museum and, and see, I mean, I'm sure most of the collections are kind of in the back archives right. kind of thing, but there's a public public collection as well. Yeah, so so we, it's a, a museum of both natural history and, and fine arts. So it's a cultural and, and natural history museum with exhibits. Um, and that's just, just like a regular museum open to the public. And then the research collections are in the basement behind mm -hmm. closed doors. Uh, and if you have some specific research question that may be answered by looking at those materials, then you can get in touch with the relevant curator and arrange for access to those collections. Nice. So if anybody happens to be traveling to Fairbanks that's listening to this, you might want to check that out. Um, seems like a lot of, and it, I guess the, the um, exhibits probably rotate from time to time. We have several spaces. One space is the Gallery of Alaska, which is dedicated to the natural history and the cultural history of Alaska. And that is a, kind of a fixed ex exhibit that has been around for years. And it, it changes, but slowly. Um, 
We also have other spaces where we do have more frequent rotations on topical exhibits or topical sub subjects. Uh, we we've had dinosaurs of Alaska when when new and interesting uh, discoveries are made. Um, and then on the second floor we have arts. Um, we have a permanent art exhibit that has some rotation of, of the pieces that are part of the museum's collection. So in your, um, in your role as the, as the curator of the, the fishes and the marine invertebrates, um, what, are you like, what are you looking at? What's curator? Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're <laughs> taking care of the collections, but like overall, I guess, is there presumably you're mostly focused on collections from Alaska, but, but it, like in your talk that I listened to yesterday, um, as we're recording this, um, you know, you were speaking about Beringian, you know, rel mm -hmm. uh, you know the, the, the effects of, of the past ice age and, and how that might affect like freshwater fish in particular. I imagine that there's some influence on saltwater fish as well as there was a separation right. between the Arctic and the, and the, and the not Arctic oceans at that time. The Pacific which, and yeah. The, yeah. And so, uh, like, like, I'm just curious, like, what's the focus of the collection? I imagine it's documenting diversity or, or preserving diversity for it, us, Alaska. yeah. So the, the collection itself, and and the way I direct its growth is concentrating on Alaskan fishes, both marine and freshwater. So the way that works, I I, I try to work uh, in collaboration with agencies and researchers mm -hmm. that are doing field work, and and take up advantage of opportunities from that field work to bring in new material to the collection. But my research includes questions that cannot be answered by just looking at fishes for collected within Alaskan boundaries. So, so we, in collaboration with other researchers, we bring in samples from other locations, but they they rarely make it into the permanent collection. Mm -hmm. They're more of my, the research materials that are used um, in the research that I lead. So, you know, it occurs to me that Small fish are probably relatively easy to preserve, but we have some big fish in the state, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I guess sharks and halibut. halibut and, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, those are some of the, the bigger ones. Uh, how How is it that you would preserve those? I we, mean, you can't difficulty. put them in a bottle, exactly. <laughs> with difficulty. We have uh, large stainless steel tanks. Mm -hmm. So same method of preservation. There's obviously some modifications and, and things you have to do to deal with a large fish. Um, for those of you listening that have never preserved a fish for our research collection, it, it's in essence a two-step process that involves embalming using formaldehyde to fix the tissues and, and followed by replacement of that formaldehyde with alcohol, uh, a high concentration solution of alcohol. And, and what that does is preservation. It keeps any microbial activity from coming into that fixed or embalmed body and de destroying it. So with large fishes, it, it's the same thing. The only difference is that you need a larger container. You need to be mindful that that embalming process, the formaldehyde fixation process is going to take a lot longer and it's going to be, you're going to need to find a way to get the formaldehyde into the deep internal tissues of the fish much more quickly than just through diffusion. So if you're looking with a, working with a little fish, you dunk it once it's been uh, euthanized. You you dunk it in a, in the formaldehyde preservative, and you let diffusion make sure that formaldehyde reaches all parts of that body. With something like a halibut or a shark, you need to inject it with formaldehyde and 
ideally find as many ways, as many channels for the formaldehyde to find its way into the deep tissues. Otherwise, you're, you're, it's a race against decay. So if, yeah. if you don't get the formaldehyde in there quickly enough, the, the flesh is going to start rotting. Once that happens, then again, it's a matter of flushing, um, rinsing out all that formaldehyde with clean water. And if it's a very large specimen, you need a very large container and you're gonna need more time to get that formaldehyde out of the tissues. And then you replace it with alcohol, again, in a large container. And the final stage in the museum collection room is, is these large stainless steel tanks that are leak proof, of course. Um, and that's where we keep those fish. So it, it is it is logistically challenging, <laughs> and we try to not have too many large fish because we would very quickly be overwhelmed by yeah. managing these collections. Well, and I imagine, I mean, even just the logistics of, um, like, Fairbanks isn't exactly a coastal community, so getting getting the fish from the ocean right. to Fairbanks, I guess maybe you start the preservation process before they even get there, or can they be frozen? Ideally not. Uh, so that's, that's a great question because... Often when we're establishing these collaborations with researchers, uh, we, we start by very gingerly approaching the subject of the logistics of preservation. And, and if it's possible, if, if the field situation that this person, this group is uh, in allows for it, we would love it if the, the fixation begins right after the fish dies. That's the ideal situation because decay starts right away. Um, in many cases, bringing formaldehyde to the field is difficult. Um, it is a hazardous material. Most airlines do not like to fly with large containers of formaldehyde. So if it's not possible to get formaldehyde to the field to begin the fixation process right after death, then the, the next best, best thing is either very deep cooling or freezing. Freezing is not great because freezing means forming ice inside the tissues mm. of the animal and that ice formation means breaking cells down. So even at, at the cellular level, preservation suffers right away. As soon as you freeze the fish, if, if some researcher in the future were interested in doing a histological, a, a tissue level examination of, of that specimen and the specimen had been frozen at some point before fixation, then you would expect that cell morphology would be hard to really retrieve with any sort of quality. Mm. So so the purpose of, of preserving these, I mean, like these days, a lot of people, I'm including myself, often think, well, DNA, you know, you don't necessarily need the whole thing for DNA, and that's and that's true. But, but uh, when animals, uh, you know, plants and everything are described, they're, they're often described based on physical characteristics and trying to understand. And I suppose also the physical characteristics will, will indicate adaptations, like if there's differences across range that may be due to ecological differences uh, in right. the niches that they're filling or something that lead to these uh, physical differences, which you can only really start to look at if you have, you know, the more complete the specimen, the better, I guess, in Absolutely, that, in that yeah. case. Yeah, if we, if we can have a perfect specimen that has been preserved right after it died and has gone through all these stages, and at some point before the fixation process, somebody has taken a small piece of tissue from a non-descript or non-conspicuous place in the body of the fish and placed it in a preservative that is suitable for genetic analysis, that's our ideal specimen because we have an access to all the genetic information through that specially preserved little piece of tissue. 
but then we have access to all the what we call the phenotypic or morphological mm. information from the preserved specimen. So, so that's the the gold standard, the holy grail of uh, a fish specimen or a research collection specimen. But there's a lot of information in less than sub sub gold standard type of material. So we're all always open to anything that could at some point be used to answer questions about distribution distribution of fishes, genetic diversity of fishes, anything that that helps us learn a little bit more about fish diversity. So the the formaldehyde makes it so it's not you can't do genetic work on it anymore. Or is that what happens? It don't no. So what happens is kind of interesting. Um, formaldehyde is acidic, and DNA doesn't handle acidic conditions very well. So that's one issue. Um, formaldehyde doesn't interact directly with the DNA molecule, or it, it doesn't damage it directly. But when you preserve a specimen in formaldehyde, and then you rinse the formaldehyde out, and then you put it in a solution of alcohol that is only about, it's usually in the 70% alcohol range, so 30% water, and then leave it in your research collection, you're usually placing it in a jar, in a shelf, at room temperature. DNA in water at room temperature is not stable unless it's inside a living cell that is maintaining it stable. So there is DNA there. And people today with modern technology, we are able to go into an old museum specimen and pull and really with a lot of effort and, and uh, with blood, sweat, and tears, are able to pull out the little DNA molecules that are still hanging on in there. They're highly degraded, but again, because we have technology to allow us to read these highly degraded pieces of DNA, there's still information there. But it's so much more work compared to working from a fresh tissue or from a tissue that was preserved specifically for, for maintaining the integrity of that genetic material. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't, you know, that I, it's not my area, I guess. It's easy to say. Probably there's not too many people that are, are working in, you know, curators sort of roles where the preservation of all these things is, is going to be, you know, understanding that it's going to be quite so important. But um, so so then I guess you just, you have a catalog essentially of, of your collection of things that, I don't know, probably some of them go back decades, I imagine, right. uh, your collections. And then, and then a research question comes up and they're like, hey, well, you know, we'd like to know about this. And then you can look in the collection or your database and say, oh, or actually, I guess they can look in the database these days because it's a lot of it's digitized. Yeah, absolutely. Almost every modern collection that is actively being developed and maintained by, by a responsible modern curator will have their catalogs available online and in many cases available in a way that it becomes part of these larger repositories of collection information. So there are global databases that periodically and automatically go into individual museum databases, suck up all the records and integrate them into this larger resource. So, so absolutely, if you have a specific question that can only be answered by going into and finding a specimen of Dolly Varden from Sitka collected in the early 1900s or the mid-1900s, you could do a search for such a specimen. And then if the question merited the effort, you could go into that very old specimen, even if it were 
formalin preserved and try to pull that information, assuming that your question is based yeah. on genetics. You yeah. know, if you just need the specimen, then you can look at that specimen, of course. So there's, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I could imagine a researcher from somewhere else that's that's kind of like, well, I'd like to look at the, the diversity uh, and distribution of Dolly Varden, you know, across their full range. And I don't actually know what the range of Dolly Varden is, but they would look in all the museums and say, okay, give me all the records and then and then want to want to probably investigate uh, from from a broad range uh, to see see what similarities and differences there were across the range. Right. And that's that's something that we do routinely. Um, one of the common types of questions that we ask in fish diversity research is are grouped under the heading of phylogeography. And it, it, it's, in essence, the biogeography of a species and understanding how that spe- the, the populations that we see of that species today in different parts of the range relate to each other and, and trying to piece together through different sources of evidence the, the origin of the species in, in, the, in the geographic orange, where mm-hmm. that species likely had its beginning and how it dispersed to different locations, uh, and and how those different locations are connected today. Are, do you know? You know, I know in Southeast Alaska they've done a fair amount of work on uh, maybe we call it subspecies endemism of mammals, small mammals in particular uh, in Southeast Alaska. Uh, you know, some that appear to have been in Southeast, you know, in a, in a, a refugia during the last ice age. Um, and then, and then also being able to say, well, these ones, some of them came from the south, some of them came from the north, some of them maybe were the interior. So, so there's genetic uh, signature essentially of the separation. And I know you were talking about that a little bit um, in your talk with respect to freshwater fishes, uh, for sure. Is there is I mean, is that showing up in saltwater fishes as well? Those kind of like like you know, if there's a big wall of ice here, maybe there's some that survived over there and, you know, on either mm-hmm. side, and then they came back to the middle. Or is that something that's even been looked at, do you know? I don't think it hasn't been looked at very much. People have thought about this idea that for every time the Bering Land Bridge was up, there was that barrier between mm-hmm. the Arctic Ocean or the Arctic Sea and the Pacific Ocean. So you would expect some biogeographic signature of that barrier forming and disappearing because different species may have been able to survive on both sides and then differentiate a little bit. And, and what we see today would be a, a coming back together of those ranges. Some species may have only been in one side of the land bridge and after the land bridge sunk, then you would expect some sort of a pattern of colonization into the place where they were not before. So, but I, I'm not familiar with any systematic analysis of that question that, yeah. that really shows you what what happened. Or um, with Arctic lamprey, we're beginning this this idea of mapping out its genetic diversity across its range, both in Asia and North America. And one of the guiding hypotheses is this idea that what we may find is that there are the descendants of populations that survive as Arctic sea draining animals or yeah locations and then there are descendants of populations that were in drainages that were going to the North Pacific Ocean and then you're in your scene so, so that you would be able to tell that um, from the genetics or, or that there was a, a gap essentially 
with, yeah. with a certain sense of the timing, like not precise, but but a certain sense of timing. Yeah, that, that that's our hope that if the signature is strong enough, we'll see some level of differentiation that is that would be hard to explain by a population that is always uh, able to mm-hmm. move back and forth and and exchange genes. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm. You know, it's easier to observe b- birds in many respects than fishes, <laughs> but birds, you know, are equally mobile. They're not limited in the same way animals are, uh, mammals are, I should say, uh, or land ma- land animals. And and in a, of course, in the in the ocean, the the fish are limited to a certain extent by, uh, I imagine, temperature kind of uh, habitat things. But some fish are, are there fish that that undergo migrations similar to uh, to like birds do. And because uh, I'm just thinking like birds. Uh, some of the, some species of birds, there's the the last ice age because their breeding their breeding ranges will be separate mm-hmm. and they'll actually come together and and be all mixed together in their non breeding season. But of course, that's enough to separate because their their genetic uh, mixing is mm-hmm. happening in the breeding. And so I didn't I was I don't know if there's similar sort of things happening with some species of fish. Obviously, I guess freshwater spawning fish right, that would yeah. be the obvious case. Yeah, um, and in freshwater, you can really see that even in things like lamprey or any fish that will go back to a stream, then there, there's the possibility of isolation by picking different streams. Uh, in the marine environment, there a lot of the species that we have are kind of open water spawners mm-hmm. or broadcast spawners. Um, they all get together in, in large aggregations and spawn. So I... It's harder to envision the opportunity for for isolation and mm-hmm. separation. So, so I guess I'm not a hundred percent sure of of what this the if, if there are opportunities for genetic differentiation in the fishes that we have in Alaska. Yeah, uh, in in other parts of like in the tropics, there may be some. Um, species that undertake oceanic migrations and then end up converging in different places for spawning and then that would provide some opportunity for differentiation well i guess i guess the other sort of scenario i could imagine and and don't know how common it is 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 species that are actually more resident they don't really go that far uh and so so they could you know if 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 they got established in say you know the bering sea or or you know um Bristol Bay, say, and then there was, well, like like the herring in Bristol Bay and the herring in Southeast Alaska, they probably never mix, but maybe there's, you know, transfer happening along the way, you know. Um, but I don't know how many species tend to be more resident. Like there's a relatively limited mm-hmm. area where a given group of fish will go and they don't tend to stray very much. That's a really cool and interesting question. I don't think that it's been answered. Um, I think in marine environments, the idea is that populations or species that are broadly distributed may exhibit patterns of differentiation that are more tied to distance. So in, mm-hmm. in the example you gave for herring, there may, may the the stocks in the in the Bering Sea and outside of the Bering Sea may not have direct communication, but there's this stepstone situation where the differentiation is really related to the number of steps that you take between mm. different populations. 
Yeah, I guess I guess one of the the, the classic examples is in in uh, you know in this kind of stuff is the with the ring species of like I think it's salamanders mm-hmm. in California. Right. Where if you go all the way around the range, <laughs> they they all can interbreed except for when they meet up again. Then they the, then those two yeah can't. They're, they're too far away. Yeah. Even though they're right next to each yeah. other. And so yeah, I guess it's it's interesting to think about that happening with uh, with fish. And I guess that would have to be more like a continent wide kind of thing, just because because uh, fish are. I guess more mobile. Maybe they're not. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's it just seems like it's a a challenge to observe because we don't we don't do so well extended periods underwater. I right. guess so. It's a little more difficult maybe to observe them. Well, yeah, thinking about the the, the salamander example mm-hmm. and, and and something that came to mind is um, northern pike. Mm. Um, we, we've been doing a little bit of work with northern pike, and in the process of doing that. We came. Uh, we started communicating with a group of researchers in France that are interested in the evolution of sex determination in fishes, uh, and they've been exploring the mechanism that determines gen- the genetic sex determination in fishes across a number of different lineages. And they had a grad student whose project was to figure out how it works in pike and pike relatives, and they did this really thorough, amazing job, being clear with complete, and were able to identify a, a very specific marker that determines whether a pike is going to be a male or a female. So that was kind of cool. Um, and, and this came, ar- came out in the literature or as a dissertation right at the time when someone from ADF&G in Fairbanks was interested in being able to have a quick genetic assay that allowed you to grab a fin tissue from a pike and say this is a male or this is a female. So it was perfect timing and we got in touch with the, the group in France and, and asked them can we use th- your method and, and they provided us with the full dissertation and we learned from there that in the process of finishing that study they wanted to check to see if the pike that they had worked on in Europe, in France um, the findings that they developed from that extended to the entire range of the northern pike. And the, the range of the northern pike includes from all the way from France, across all of Europe, across all of northern Asia, into North America, across all of northern North America to basically the Great Lakes area. So they, they were able to get for that study some samples from North America, from BC, from another a couple of other locations in Canada in the North America uh, the US Midwest and apply the same methods that they use for their discovery and found that North American pike do, do not have that mechanism of sex determination they could not find any evidence of it it was just it turned up nothing so that was kind of interesting and discouraging because we thought well we are in North America and the method that we were hoping to apply is unlikely to work, but they, 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 the folks in France wanted to check out the Alaskan pike, so we sent them some samples, and it turned out that our pike are more similar to European pike in that trait, in the fact that there is a marker, and it's the same marker with certain variants, and one variant will give you a male, and the other variant will give you a female. So, so the cool news is that the test works for us but going back to your question it may mean that something that we've called northern pike forever 
if we were to try to breed northern pike from Alaska with northern pike from just across the border in Canada, they may be reproductively isolated because mm. their mechanisms of sex determination are different. So this would, you know, I guess if, if somebody may come along and say, well, that would make them different species potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. And exactly. Then, and then, and then the Alaska pike would be essentially the Eurasian right. pike. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and well, so, so like with a species like pike, this is something I've, I've wondered about for a long time. Uh, and they're pretty big fish, I think, right? They get very large. Um, yeah. Like how, <laughs> how do they get across all of Asia and North America? There's mountain ranges in between dividing the fresh, like, do they ever have a, a time where they're in salt water? They, they could go in salt water to move between or? That's, that's a really interesting and tricky question. So, there are, in Europe, in the Baltic Sea, there is a population of northern pike that exploits um, brackish water, brackish water yeah. regularly, and they even spawn in brackish conditions. But as far as I know, it's the only place where northern pike are known to be able to do that. Here in Alaska, I've never found a wreck, even though northern pike uh, occur in the Yukon, um, I've never found a record of them showing up in coastal waters. Um, in Asia, the situation is a little trickier. Um, there are a lot of very extensive coastal plains that could serve as wetland connections between adjacent streams or ad adjacent rivers. So you could see them being able to kind of move from one to, to the next river through wetlands because one of the... the Defining traits or behavioral characteristics of northern pike is in their, their breeding behavior uses the the overflow of riverbanks. As soon as spring comes and water levels begin to rise through the rain or through more often through snow melt, you get the banks kind of floating over and creating these very shallow, very uh, weedy, very vegetated wetlands. That those are the ideal places for northern pike to, to move into, spawn, and the rearing of the very earliest stages of uh, a northern pike life. So you could see how in situations where you have extensive coastal plains, very flat coastal plains, if you have flooding of those plains in a way that in essence connect through very shallow waterways all of the rivers that are draining onto that plain, the northern pike juveniles could easily find their way across different rivers. So that's that's one possible explanation. In North America, if you look at the distribution of northern pike, it, it, it's almost a mirror image of the distribution of the Laurentide ice sheet. So those that distribution is usually explained as northern pike riding proglacial lakes um, as the ice sheet retreated tended to form or it, it was expected to form large lakes mm. right at the before base the, of, before the uplift kind right of, yeah, yeah right at, at the base of that melt there, there there are many prehistoric hypothesized large lakes that that form a diagonal line from what's today the the great lakes area or even farther south than that north towards alaska so that may have been the the channel through which many freshwater fishes of North America that are today distributed in the places that are not that used to be covered by the ice mm -hmm. sheet found their way here.
hmm. just migrating, moving through those that lake system. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, I've long been curious, and I suppose you know, like you're, the the story with the pike makes sense. But I guess every species has its own sort of life history, natural history thing, and and so the the manner in which it, it is able to move between systems uh, is is going to be different as a result. Uh, you know, so yeah, it's interesting. It's they're they're spawning in in what i guess like especially during spring runoff where you're in icy climates like the the ice Mm -hmm. can dam up and really create all sorts of flooding that opens up connections that you didn't expect to be there and then over the course of thousands of years it's like it only has to happen once really Um, and 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 they can they, they can then move it seems like they're i mean given their introduction in south central where they seem to be successful i guess uh maybe they're they're pretty successful colonizers if they get an opportunity yeah i think wherever they get if there's food um and food doesn't have to be fish um they they all can also live on invertebrates um whatever there's crayfish they'll eat crayfish um so so they're very good at making a living uh and there are locations in the midwest where you have entire ecosystems that are pike based so you Mm. have little pike serving as the food for the larger pike oh wow and it's the only species there is just pike eating pike wow um huh yeah it's i mean it is kind of it's it's fascinating story with the fishes i guess and you you mentioned um in in your talk that that alaskan diversity of fishes is a 600 in the neighborhood uh, uh there in terms of species yeah if you count both marine and freshwater and and the bulk of those are marine yeah, marine yeah and then but but worldwide was it like 30,000? Is that kind That's of... our current estimate. That's yeah. the rough figure. It's a little above 30,000, but yeah. 30,000 yeah. is a good number to kind remember. Order of magnitude-ish. And, and just for comparison, I think birds are a little over 10,000 and mammals are, I think, significantly less than that. Uh, yeah, what, what I like to tell my students in ichthyology is if you add up all other vertebrate groups combined, you don't reach the total number oh. of species as <laughs> you have living fish species oh, interesting. and that's just one brag the other brag is that if you if you take the the phylogenetic the evolutionary perspective and look at the tree of life all tetrapods are fully nested inside the fish tree of life mm. so we're you, really fish exactly exactly so <laughs> if we think about it that way then all vertebrates are fish if we want to have a mono monophyletic group exactly uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, huh. Um, well, and that reminds me the the tree of life thing. So, so in principle, I guess we're a person, and, and these days that would be much cheaper to do um, than it used to be. But a person could take samples from across a range of pike, say, or, or really any other fish, and say, what's the structure of this this species population, mm-hmm. and and have a sense. And at least my understanding is that with genetics, you can kind of you can guess a little bit about the the time of of separation, like the last time these these groups were were inter interbreeding. Yeah, you um, can take some very broad guesses. Yeah. Yeah. So you could make something of a historical map of of relatedness, um, or map a, a current map of 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 the genetic diversity across a, a species range, and then say, you know, these, you know, the Midwest Midwest fish you know, hypothetically would have separated from the Alaskan fish, you know, at, at, at you know, 10,000 yeah. years ago, approximately or whatever. Right. And that's making some assumptions about the rate of mutation of, of things and, right, and so right. forth. 
Um, so like, yeah, I guess, I mean, I don't know if people have started to do that or not. Yeah, no, that, that's a, a very active area of research. Um, I don't know what you would call it, but it's, it's testing hypotheses of biogeography or mm -hmm. phylogeography using genetics. So if you have uh, great examples in the fish world, not related to, to populations, but relating to lineages, but big differences between species um, come from the study of freshwater fishes that are found in the major southern land masses. So you have great examples like longfish. Um, as far as we know, the, the, the modern lineage of longfishes is freshwater restricted, it's freshwater limited, yet you find longfishes, modern longfishes, in South America, in Africa, in, in Australia. So that, that, that gives you a, a beautiful case where you can use genetics, use your best possible analytical tools to estimate the timing of divergence between the South American, the African, and the Australian longfish species, and see if the t those timings match up with the times when those land masses were still connected. So, so people do things like that. They do it with longfish. There's a, there's several other groups of fish, fishes that are found across, uh, let's say, Africa and South America, or Africa uh, and Southeastern Asia, and and it's done with some frequency. If you have the right setting. Uh, something like the southern land masses, the geology gives us lots of clues about when those separations took place. So that places a latest age by which these things must have diversified um, if they were just riding the, the tectonic plates mm -hmm. and moving away from each other with the tectonic plates. And in some cases, it, it pans out really well. It matches. And there's there's a case from... A group of um, that that includes these the weekly electric um, African freshwater fishes, the elephant fishes, where the test kind of works okay, but not perfectly. There's there's some indication that the dates don't quite match up with the, the separation, and it, it would indicate either that we have the geology wrong, and then the separation took place a little later than than that it's thought, or maybe that this fish were actually at some point through some stroke of luck or some weird historical accident able to disperse even though these land masses were already separated. So those things are done. It's the the tricky thing is with all of these uh, markers of separation like when Africa and South America were separated by a seaway, those that date really is only uh, an upper limit. But then you don't know, you don't really have a solid lower limit. Mm. The, that diversification could have taken place at any point when the two land masses were still one unit. Um, so there are a range of different genetic outcomes that would be compatible with, with that diversification. You wouldn't be able to put in a, a bottom end on the, on the timing of the radiation. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. And I guess... Um, I'm sort of like Rolodexing a little bit through through the different things I've heard talk about um, in in other groups. Some of the things that they look that they look at is is you know because they're repeated contact over over like if there's a population that every once in a while there's so so you have a sense of how often they're connected a little bit or whether it's a repeat thing or a one time thing that, mm -hmm. that happened 
and it seems like there's interesting analytical techniques. I guess probably a lot of those are, are actually the math techniques to to tease apart the genetic data right. um, that that people are, are gathering. But yeah, just I find it would be fascinating to just see the. You, you know, I guess it's the, the relatedness tree overlaid upon the, the map, uh, you know, the geographic map and saying, you know, mm-hmm. here's here's where these things were all sort of more closely or less closely related. And and then having some, you know, some understanding of the geologic history, ice ages and continental drift and, and those kind of things. There, there's a, a cool uh, application, a, a software implementation for taking uh Something that looks like a phylogenetic tree, a phylogeographic tree that links together populations of a species or individuals of a species that were collected from different locations, and and drawing that that tree on top of a geographic map, which is exactly what you mm. were describing. So so there are a couple of programs out there that do that and and try to see exactly what that means. Uh, so it is it's a cool visualization of the relationships between different locations. Yeah, I suppose. You know, one of the things that you mentioned was was the um, dramatic is understating it really uh, decrease in price of of the ge- genetic work. You know, oh, whole, whole genome, yeah. uh, human genome was a hundred million dollars approximately. To you know, whole genome uh, genetic work is what, like a thousand dollars or something these yeah. days. Um, so, which opens up the opportunity for a lot more of of this kind of work to be done. I imagine. Uh, oh yeah. It, it, Reading the literature today, um, every time you open a, a new issue from a journal that you're interested in, there are genomic scale work being published monthly, daily, week, or weekly maybe. Um, and it, it's all possible thanks to these improvements in technology. Genetic work has been going on in wildlife research and, and evolutionary biology research for several decades now, but it was uh, a much more small scale. The questions were much more limited in scope. Um, there was, um, we worked a lot harder to extract a little bit of information or as much information as possible from a little bit of data. And now there's just this wealth of, of data, the, the scope of the data sets that are being generated is, is hard to describe. But the interesting thing about it is that it's not just more data, but it's richer information. We we now have the potential to go into a species that no one had ever looked at before, maybe even morphologically, just very little knowledge of these populations, and relatively quickly and efficiently generate useful and relevant information on the genetic variability of that population that no one ever knew existed a day before. Um, information on how that variation is distributed on our landscape. And even because because this growth has not been, well, let me rephrase that, because all these living things are related to each other, if someone has gone in and done a lot of work on the genome and the genomic structure and the gene arrangement of tanner crab, and then I go and discover that there's this other species of crab that is very similar to the tanner crab. Any work that I do on this new species that until now no one knew about benefits greatly from all this tanner crab work because I can compare my DNA sequence information from this random new thing and very quickly make solid inferences about what I discovered. So 
I can map out where the gene for a certain trait is located, even though no one has looked at these species, because there are all these related resources, you can do it very easily. And with fishes, um, and, and all vertebrates, especially true, there are a number of initiatives out there that are hoping to do full genome assemblies for large sets of species. There's, there's even an in initiative that, is, that wants to do it for all vertebrate species. So once a, an assembled genome is, is available publicly for a given species, anything you do that is, is just asking smaller questions about genetic variability is so much more easier to do from the analysis, from the computation of the data, to interpreting what the, what the data mean. Hmm. You know, I, I am curious. I know in invertebrates there's um, cryptic species, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, especially, you know, and plenty of you know, more more cryptic species, undescribed species, and you can shake a stick at sort of thing that they're not that hard to come across. My guess is that fish are better studied than invertebrates, um, mm -hmm. generally speaking. Is are there is there, and probably in the tropics there are undescribed or cryptic species that are you know maybe the habitat is different or something that, uh, but. I wouldn't necessarily expect there to be much of that in Alaska, but is I'm kind of curious. Like with isolated river systems, would there be the potential for things that are? Well, I guess an example you gave was the brook. This is kind of the opposite of that, I guess, where it was thought two species were separate, but they turned out to be different life histories of the same species with uh, Arctic lamprey and, and brook lamprey, Alaska or what brook, is called yeah. Alaska brook lamprey. But is it is is it happening in the other direction where you're you're finding? Uh, evidence of things that were once thought to be the same that turning out to be different? We haven't found anything like that in Alaska yet. Um, uh, but a part of the answer would be you, you have to figure out exactly what you mean by species yeah. and, and how you're going to identify boundaries between species. In, in many cases, it's easy if you see no overlapping genetic variation or, well, if, if you find morphology that clearly diagnoses one type over the other and there's no evidence of plasticity or, or changes due to environmental conditions, then you, you could say that there are species. But with all one of the scary things with the availability of this very fine-grained genetic information is the, maybe the tendency to start thinking, okay, if, if I find that something is, gene uh, there's a gene pool that is, distinct enough from other gene pools that I've examined, then maybe it's a different species. And a good example of that is um, lake trout and, and a number of uh, char species that, that are able to move very quickly across all areas that used to be glaciated uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. They tend to colonize locations, lakes and streams very quickly and they seem to have done it via a small number of founder individuals, and then they get established. So what that means is that you very quickly have these very distinct gene pools because each little population is really the descendant. It's, it's a family. It's a different mm -hmm. family. And um, then if you were to collect the uh, information on genetic variability across the range of the lake trout, you would find a number of very distinct pockets of genetic variation. And you could start making an argument that these things are on their own evolutionary trajectories. They are 
working with different tools, uh, different genetic tools, so we should think about them as different species. Uh, so they're reproductively yeah. isolated in the context of sort of human history. Yeah, uh, exactly. But I guess, recent history. Yeah, uh, the, the question I suppose that is, is will they continue to remain isolated, uh, you know, just by physical things? And, and if they come back together, would they then mix their, uh, mix their genetics in a way that they can't right now? Right. I, one of the tricky things with defini definitions of species is th there's one that talks about kind of evolutionary trajectories. Mm -hmm. and, and if you think about it, it's really defining something that is more of a process in time. And it, it, it's very hard to fit a definition that requires some sort of a time series or, or something to be true over a series of time steps to fixed entities. So you can't go out into nature today and say, okay, let, where are the species? If your definition of a species requires some sort of integration across a number of centuries or eons or whatever it, it may be. Yeah, I guess uh, we like to draw circles around things. And, mm -hmm. and in the end, uh, the circles really say as much about us as, as they do the things that we're drawing the circles around in terms of what's important to us, I guess, uh, in, our, in our putting things in their boxes. Uh, so it is, it is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, the different species concepts and some people get really heated about those. It seems yeah. like, and, and, yeah. and it's like a fun argue. thing to think about because yeah. there, there are, there's something there, right? There yeah. are different types. Um, but, but it's important to, to remember that they're there because they're the emerging things that happen from this evolutionary process. There's, there's no metaphysical species. It's just something we can see emerging from a process of diversification, of movement to a new area, of natural selection, putting pressures on a population and making it look different. But, but at no point is there an, an arbiter out there that says, okay, now you're a species, you've yeah. reached that level and you're good to go. Yeah, I find it fascinating um, thinking about, like I read about Lake Baikal in, uh, in Asia that's, 30 million year old lake or something like that and and the species that are endemic there because it's been there so long uh and just and you know i don't know that i obviously can't see the future 30 million years from now but you know the great lakes or whatever if there were not another ice age like presumably that the processes that are of isolation that are undergoing or are, are are happening now and and actually all the interesting stuff of like people moving things around like people have gotten really good at moving things mm -hmm. for better and worse and it certainly is disruptive in the moment but in 10 million years from now you know it, it's like it all presumably stabilizes again in 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 some you know depending on the new climate configuration and, yeah, yeah yeah so it's it's like i don't know I, I find it interesting just to kind of think about but i don't really have it's hard to gain traction on what that actually ends up looking like yeah. but it's interesting to think about the past and and uh, and how it's how things have changed uh, into now, um, but uh, salmon is one. I guess I, I I remember going to see a talk, and uh, it was about the the work that they're doing investigating the strays of hatchery salmon. I think uh, chums and pinks in particular mm -hmm. in Southeast Alaska. And one of the things that they were looking at a little bit was just like, okay, where are the different hatchery salmon showing up in rivers? Mm -hmm. uh, and but the broader question that seems of interest to me, and I don't know if anybody's really done much work on this, is just like again, it'd be kind of that that structure map. How how much of how much are these streams 
mixing like mm-hmm. how often because because clearly once they're in the stream they're not you know they're just they're just interbreeding with the ones there and salmon are mostly faithful to their to their home stream um but but obviously they're able to colonize you know the I, i've heard about uh work in the glacier bay as the glaciers receded and and seeing the, moving the salmon That's salmon it. that are showing up there so it seems like a really fascinating like in a given stream presumably there's the founders and and they're dominant in the beginning but if there continues to be strain then there would be mixing there's that's always going on. a little bit of a turnover yeah. and uh and then adapting to uh, you know i think some of the some of the things i've also heard about is that there's you know there'll be a, a population will be adapted to the conditions of that particular stream system and so it it isn't you can't just move other fish there and assume that it's going to work well right like they'll va- adapt over time if they survive um but is how much do you know how if there's been a lot of work done on kind of this the structure of salmon populations or is that on the structure of salmon populations of course because that's the a, a big piece of management you mm. need to know the stocks that are out there and how different they are and and if they're being fished in when when they're coming back in or at any point in the ocean in in the oceanic life stage if if you're doing responsible management and Alaska does very responsible management, they're being typed for stock associations so that you you are aware that X number of individuals are being harvested from X or Y stock. Uh, that that's important to keep track of. So the genetic structure, uh, the, the baseline information that's available for the different strains and different um, major groups of salmon out there for for the commercially important species are always being monitored, always being examined. Um, In some cases, it works better than in other cases, not because lack of effort, but it's some groups really getting that, pulling that information out of the genomes of the species is not always straightforward. So some some species have much more marked genetic structure that is easier to retrieve and, and it's easy to type some species are a little more similar across the range and then pulling that information is a, a bigger effort um, and if that differentiation is very subtle then when you're when you have a single fish that you genotype having certainty that you know exactly where it came from becomes harder because because mm. it, it they're not signatures that are diagnostic there are signatures that are more okay the fish from this region are a little bit more like this and and they're rarely like this yeah but then you catch an individual fish and it's one or another thing and then mapping it to the right place it's a little trickier that's where mixed stock analysis comes into place and and mathematical methods of trying to derive the best placement of those individuals and if you have lots of individuals it gets a little easier because you can make some some assumptions of of how the population behaves as a group rather than just having to do an individual yeah yeah i guess you know and i uh, you know now having thought about it a little bit as you're as you're ex- explaining there and uh like the faster a uh, species distributes the the less time there is for there to be differentiation i suppose so part of the differentiation is happening it it has it takes time i mm-hmm. guess and I don't know how much time before you can start seeing sure. those things, but in a in a young ecosystem, you're you're going to have less less chance to to tease apart those differences. The differences will be subtler then, as you mm-hmm. were saying, and so harder to harder to see. And so then you 
um, yeah, you, I guess that would just make it more, more different. You could say maybe where they came from, like, like where their source was, so to speak. But if, if that was an older, older kind of thing and, and there was those differentiations, but yeah, I guess it, it's kind of, it, it's just fascinating to me to think about all the different kind of questions that, that we can start to start to look at. And, and, you know, I think about all the streams around Southeast Alaska and, and the things coming here and there. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, uh, an interesting, an interesting puzzle, I guess. Lots of more questions than answers, I suppose. Always. <laughs> yeah, and and with this new technology that's becoming available for genotyping, it'll be interesting to see if if it's possible to get even more details on mm-hmm. on stock structures and then um, a, the the relationship between different populations. That until more until now, really. Um, a lot of the baseline information that's available for fishes in Alaska is based on the the best technology available, which involved looking at a large but not a genomic scale portion of the mm-hmm. genome. So, so you're looking at maybe dozens of places in a genome as opposed to being able to look at tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of places in a genome. So you... If the if the signal if the structure if the differentiation is strong, a dozen places will give you all the information that the thousands of places will give you. But if this the signal the structure the history is much more subtle and much more recent, then there may be value in going to those larger mm-hmm. data sets and those more in depth explorations of genomic genomic variability. No, that makes sense. Yeah, and I uh, before we wrap up here, as we're coming close to the hour, uh, is there anything, you know, as the, as a curator, if, if people are out and fishing or, or observing fish, is there anything in particular that that you'd suggest that they watch out for or make note of that would be helpful? Uh, anytime people come across a really odd looking fish that they they really are thinking that this thing has never been around here please 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 take a great picture a great picture has the whole fish in it Uh, you can see the fin placement ideally you can see a little bit of the coloration maybe take a couple of close-ups of the head of the of the placement of of the number of um, elements or bony little bony race on the fins Um, if you're really geeky and in the mood maybe um, bring the fish back with you and throw it in a fridge and get in touch with the museum if it's something really rare we may want to have the whole thing or maybe just a tissue sample from it Mm -hmm. but but to to keep something like that we really need some sort of morphological evidence Mm -hmm. and and good photographs are are good substitutes for a specimen yeah well, I appreciate your time coming in and visiting with me. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded and originally aired back in the spring of 2019. I was speaking with Andres Lopez, the curator of ichthyology and marine invertebrates. He was in town as part of the Scientists in Residence Fellowship Program at the Sitka Sound Science Center. I want to thank him again for taking some time to visit with me. And thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.